Um, are you gonna just so we I know what's gonna happen here? Are you going to edit this down, or do I need to sound intelligent in the first round? Oh no 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 no! <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I'll edit that. Maybe maybe I doubt it. <laughs> <coughs> what I will do is I will start with something from the conversation that's a real hook to put at the okay. very beginning, and there'll be a little music or something, and then and then we we'll start talking. Uh, okay. And, uh, I, I hope it's going to be like something lively, like disco or something. <laughs> because this is this is meant to be a grad. This whole thing is meant to be a grammar party. I've never heard that term before. Grammar <laughs> party. It's perfect. I have a though. lot. I have a lot more where that came from. All right. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you right at the outset, I love your book. Your really? Most oh, yeah, 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 I do. And for reasons we'll get into. But uh, I think we need to have you. Oh, first of all, your last name, Jovin, is that how it's pronounced? Yes, it's just, okay, the, just the plain, way plain, boring thing. No French or Italian or anything. Just that's <laughs> I don't know very why I well asked done. I'm just going to call you Ellen throughout the whole conversation. <laughs> Explain who you are and what you do. I think it'll be easier okay. to have you do that. Okay, I'm happy to do that. Uh, my name is Ellen Joven, and I am a lifelong language-obsessed person. Um, four years ago, I decided it would be a good idea to have a traveling, well, actually not traveling yet. I decided it would be a good idea to have a pop-up grammar advice stand. So I bought a folding table, made a sign, Walked outside my building, put the table down, and started answering grammar questions from passersby. You know what that reminds me of? It sounds like it sounds like uh, Lucy in the old Peanuts cartoons. The psychiatrist is in, or the doctor is in, or whatever that said. But you're yes, not even charging the nickel. I know I'm cheaper, um, and it's <laughs> funny because you know I didn't think of that when I uh, when I started doing it, but people started pointing that out, yeah. and um, I was intrigued uh, because. I guess you don't know what's at work on your subconscious, you know, when these things are happening. I read a huge amount of Peanuts when I was a kid, and I read those books over and over and over and over again. So it's completely in my, in, like, in my upbringing. So maybe that was at work up there. So you live in New York City, and so that's where you started setting up your table? Somewhere. Yes, and I and I live right by an express subway stop, which is extremely convenient for obtaining grammar traffic. But I grew up in Los Angeles, so I lived. I grew up in California, and I've lived here for most of my adult life. Oh, okay. So you decided to start answering people's grammar questions. Why? <laughs> it just seemed like a logical thing to do. Um, I well. I, I always have loved language and grammar. My professional life is built around those things. I've either taught writing and grammar or written professionally throughout my adult life. And I studied in school. I studied um, German. Um, the, my undergraduate degree is in German. My graduate degree is an MA in comparative literature. So uh, I've studied a ton of languages um, besides the ones I, I did in school, 25 plus to be exact, um, for, because, you know, if you're looking for grammar, why constrain yourself to English? There are so many other languages. So while because talking, English is a, is a lifelong study unto itself. <laughs> well, I enjoy 
right, right as I'm speaking to you right now, I have behind me um, rows and rows of grammar books. You're, yeah. you're able in the view that you have right now, which others won't have, but in this view, um, this is a partial view of my language library, which is alphabetized from Albanian to Zulu. I just really love language books, language materials. Um, so I started doing that as a hobby in my 40s, you know, just with the internet. Oh, I'm going back to your original question. So um, in 2009, I discovered social media for the first time. I'd been resistant, but then when I found it, I also found online language groups. For example, on Facebook, they have all these groups for language learners. So I joined dozens and dozens of them. Um, I was in a giant group called Polyglots for people who study languages as hobbies, and I got really, really into it. And so I'd be online talking to people about genitive case or <laughs> like all kinds <laughs> of grammatical features of other languages. But the years went by, and I don't know if you've experienced this yourself, Dave, but um, I got crabby being online. It's, you know, it's not, we're not as physical beings. We're not meant yeah. to spend this much time on computers. So yeah. I just decided in 2018, I just thought, hey, I'll transfer some of my online grammar nerding out onto the street. That's what happened. That's what your book is mostly about. I, I'm, I'm only about, I'm about halfway through it. Um, I'm not going to give you a quiz unless you want one. <laughs> I will fail. Let me explain. <laughs> let me explain something about me, which is I think weird, but you may find that you're going to say. I'm thinking you might say, "Oh yeah, there's a lot of people like you." Uh, I've been in radio for 53 years, so I've been talking for a living uh, since I was a teenager, and I, I also write. But when I was in school, I I was. I was a terrible English student in that I, I could write and read very, very well from the outset. I think it's because I read an awful lot when I was a child, but by the time I was in high school, I was a good writer, but I could, the, you know, this grammar stuff, the, the names of the parts of language and, you know, and people diagramming sentences. And <laughs> I, one time I actually got myself in trouble. I was a sophomore year in high school. And uh, poor Miss Hart was diagramming sentences on the board. And I s popped up in the middle of the class and said, Miss Hart, why don't you teach us how to put a sentence together rather than take them apart? And she was not amused. But the, 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 ups <laughs> the upshot was that it, all the way through school in my English classes, I would get A's for my for my uh, compositions and and uh, assignments for writing, but I would get C's and D's in the actual grammar quizzes. And I, as a result, had a little bit of trouble planning this conversation with you because I wanted to make give myself a list of questions if I want to come to something. Don't forget something. But honest to goodness, I started reading your book and so forth. And, and I don't want to give the wrong impression of the book because it's not stuffy at all. It's very entertaining and very lively. But uh, I, I run across these parts of speech that I'd forgotten exist. I've forgotten the names of them. I still have no idea what they mean. I can't tell you a dangling participle from a pluperfect subject jumping or whatever it is, subjective. I, so it's it's a very confusing thing for me. And... Uh, I know that you've you run into it seems to me that the people that come up and ask you questions 
have a pretty good sense of what it is they want to get at. And I couldn't do that. Well, you, you just raised so many um, topics and questions and ideas for me. Let me try to be orderly. Well, you should this. interrupt so I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I can handle it. Um, I do meet, I do definitely meet people like you. Um, but I think, you know, we're all different. Every one of us uh, has different strengths and skills. And it's absolutely the case that it's possible to be an excellent writer without really connecting in the, you know, you just described it without connecting with the, the grammatical approach to things. Now I used to be, and when I was in school, I was actually a mathlete. I was, you know, I always loved language and writing, but I was a very math and science, like friendly student. That was um, probably more of my focus. And I anticipated that would be more where I'd end up. So it makes sense to me with the way my brain operates that I would like the grammar stuff. And it was actually my eighth grade diagramming class with Barbara Beebe. Um, and I'm still in touch with her today, <laughs> naturally, and with my third and fifth grade English teacher, Laura Bickle. Um, so uh, her diagramming class just absolutely set my brain on fire. I would al already loved grammar and I'd start in my elementary school, we started studying Spanish in fourth grade. So I was also already thinking about it, you know, in a different language. I spoke German as a very small child because my family lived in Germany and I went to a German kindergarten. Maybe that affected me also in some way that I, that I am no longer capable of remembering. But um, I happen to like thinking about these things very analytically. Um, but my, my, my motto, this isn't my only motto, I have a lot of mottos, <laughs> is, is, is literature first, grammar second. So if I had just studied grammar in isolation, forget, you know, that's not, that's not really a way to connect to language, the right. thing that binds us together as human beings. It's, um, it's the reading that dominated everything else, I think, the reading and the writing. And then for me, on top of that, I happen to like to pull apart the sentences in a way that didn't appeal to you. That doesn't mean anything, though. We might just have different learning approaches. So I don't consider myself at all an expert in the mysteries of what engages children, which is the key. That's kind of what we're talking about here. Like how do you, writing is a very important skill, being able to communicate well, very important. How do you connect children to that when they're young um, and ignite their interest? So for you, that part was a failure. Maybe for other students in your class, it helped them. I know that when I write, I do think, I am thinking very technical, technically about why a given sentence doesn't work. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it might be, oh, the opening dependent clause has, has too many modifiers and it goes on too long. And then the independent clause after that is an exciting and dynamic enough. So I am thinking that way, but you can do that in a more intuitive way and still get the same outcome. My big thing right now, as right now, always has been, I guess, is, and I, I have a terrible time communicating with people. My own wife, we've been married for 34 years. <laughs> she's still, she still, she says things where I have a sense of what it is she's trying to say, but I don't get it because she's not, not real clear about defining what, you know what I'm saying? It's like the definitions of words to me become a problem because I expect people to be saying exactly what they mean and they almost never are. So I have a lot of trouble understanding what try, people are trying to say. And they always end up something like looking at me crazy. Like, it's like, well, you know what I meant. 
And I said, this no, I, like didn't, it, I didn't know. This sounds like it might be something beyond grammar, though. <laughs> well, it's not just her. It's not just her. All I'm striving for is clarity and simplicity and uh, not trying to show off with the words that I use. And, uh, you know. I think that that intersects closely with my own style. So we may have come at this from a different, from different directions in some ways, but in the end, I, what I care about, I don't care whether, I don't think it matters whether people know they can define a verb or remember subjunctive. I think it is important for um, professional success and also a lot of different types of personal rewards that we may not think about. I think it's valuable to have uh, control of these elements, but you can have control of them without naming them. I mean, language didn't originate with people saying, okay, okay, guys, now we need a noun. We need more nouns. Let's make a pile of verbs over here by the fire. Like it just, <laughs> it happened. <laughs> it happened intuitively and organically. Yeah. So plenty of writers tell me that too. People who write for a living who are beautiful writers. And they, they, I notice people feel embarrassed that they can't remember what a clause is. Yeah. But I truly, if you can still do the things that you need to do without that, who cares? There you go. That's what I. That's what I love about your book. Because uh, by the 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 book, by the way, is Rebel without a cl- with a clause. Yes, and I, I my joke my my new joke about that, which I think is not very obvious, and so maybe I'm going to have to drop it, is that if I were a rebel without a clause, it would have been a very short book. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> good point. <laughs> All right, when we first started exchanging emails, I said I'm I'm just dying to get at this at this uh, Oxford comma thing because it, for some reason it keeps popping up everywhere I look. People send me emails and my own son, and I've been talking about uh, Oxford commas. Can you explain what an Oxford comma is for those who are not aware and and, and why there's a controversy about it and how you feel about it? <laughs> sure. Um, depending on when and where you went to school, you might have learned it under, under a different name, first of all. So it has some aliases. It's the Oxford comma or the serial comma, not like a serial box, but S-E-R-I-A-L. And then it's also sometimes known as a series comma, but I don't, I, I'm not, I don't encounter that much in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is the comma before the and. When you have a list, it's the comma before the and that precedes the last item. So, for example, I, uh, I ate peaches, comma, grapes, and what else? And uh, and toast for breakfast. Okay. Peaches, grapes. We, that is a weird breakfast. That's not what I have for breakfast. But, <laughs> so in that case, I have a, a cluster of items: peaches, grapes, and toast. Some people put the comma before the and, which is called the Oxford comma. Some people don't, and often the people who are very attached to it get grumpy if you yes. remove it from their writing. Yeah. 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 So do you use it? I use it when I think it's absolutely necessary for clarity. So that that sounds, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, I I mean, I can't, I can't give you, I can't give you uh, a proper example, but it's the kind of thing that you read once in a while because everybody everybody thinks it's a very funny sentence to say, uh, let's eat grandma or let's eat (laughs) grandma. You know, it's that kind of difference. And if that, if that occurs 
in a series, then I will use it. But otherwise, I my problem with this, I I when I read or when I write, I should say, I want the sentence to be not only uh, communicate clearly and have a sense of of uh, uh, feeling rhythm? to pardon me yeah oh. rhythm the rhythm is important and and the emotion that it's imparting you know writing between the lines and so forth i i want it to be visually as clean as possible i don't like to write a sentence and see i've got four commas in here uh it looks to me like this should this should be two sentences not one and that's my problem with the oxford comma but I'll be darned if uh, now that I with on the computer, I use Grammarly, which pops up and kind of corrects you, helps you along once in a while, because I'll, I'll, you know, I'll make a typo more than anything. It's just I'll, I'll make a typo and that'll help me out. But that darn thing insists on the Oxford comma and it annoys it really. Yeah, it annoys me to, to no end. I have to. Uh, that, that actually surprises me a little bit, but I haven't tested it. I was actually trying to get myself invited over to Grammarly's headquarters um, yesterday because I feel a moral obligation <laughs> to under <laughs> to know more about the tool. And it's also interesting to know how these products are developed and the kind of um, work that goes behind them. I never use grammar checkers. I always turn them off if I can find them. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're a little elusive, so I had to have a little tech support last week to get rid of one that was annoying me. It yeah. objected to my spelling of Y-O-U-R, or I can't remember whether it wanted me to put Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. Yeah, I think that's what it wanted me to do, and I had Y-O-U-R. They're distinctively and I different words. Yeah, and I was, I mean, I was right. It wasn't like I was, but, you know, it didn't recognize, in my sentence, I guess it was predicting that it was more likely that I would want the other. Yeah. But it, I, I don't like being bossed around in grammar. Right. So I, <laughs> no, you, and, nor I'm, should you. <laughs> no, I think I find the same problem. It's it's uh, it's like somebody sitting here going, "Oh, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait." Look at it. But I, but I do like to see that I've made a I've, I've misspelled something because I hit a wrong key. Absolutely, and I think for me that is a useful tool for Grammarly too. Like if you if you have your brain fully turned on and you're exerting your own will on the document. It may be helpful to you, like just don't auto accept everything. It may be helpful to point out something that uh, you have, you may have a typo that created a grammatical problem and it will help you find it quickly. But I, especially if you are an original writer, you know, if you're doing things that are kind of creative and then maybe don't kind of fit with the standard sentence in some unexpected way, like the oh. one, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying my sentence with the your was creative, but something about the structure was unusual to Grammarly. If you do a lot of that kind of stuff, you're going to get marked all the time and it's just going to get in the way of your, you know, who wants to see red lines under what they've written? I hate looking I've, at red lines. I, I've written plays. When you write dialogue. Oh yeah. Grammarly will drive you out of your mind. So yes. I've, got a piece of, I've got a piece of software that doesn't have that, or you, you can turn that kind of thing off. Otherwise, it's correcting the fact that you're writing like a real person, not like not like the rules. Are Why you talking about rules? script writing software? Pardon me? Yeah. I'm talking about, yeah. Um, uh, you, you asked me a question that I haven't answered yet, so I just want to make sure I hang on to this. Okay. My position on the Oxford comma is that I don't really care because it's way less important than people think it is. But in cases where it's needed for clarity, even if you're following associated press style, 
lot of people think you're just not supposed to put it in. That is not the case. You are supposed to put it in according even to Associated Press style, which normally says leave it out if you have a clarity problem. And here's a clarity problem, or at least a readability problem. I ordered salad, comma, spaghetti and meatballs, and soda. So I have spaghetti and meatballs and soda. I have an and in the second item. And so that one screams for a comma after meatballs. I ordered salad, comma, spaghetti and meatballs, comma, and soda. It's not inconsistent. I think people get so obsessed with consistency yeah. that they feel like they're violating sort, some sort of grammar law if they say, oh, well, I don't normally put it, but I'm going to put it here. No, you are helping the reader. It's about audience. Your audience well, I, sensitive. I think the reason people feel that way is because we call them rules. We call them grammar rules. And, you know, and we ask each other, is it correct to do this? Yeah. And, and you're right. Uh, there are exceptions to pretty much all rules. And, and if, if you're the ahead. one that's, if you're the one that's wielding the language, it ought to fit. It ought to fit your intent at the, at the moment. I think that the role of memory is very important in this piece of the discussion because people uh, you know, people who can't remember what they had for lunch yesterday think they remember exactly what they were taught when they were 11. And it's just not the case. I mean, it, it's true that sometimes things are taught, um, occasionally things are caught, taught incorrectly, and sometimes thinking about a particular language issue changes, you know, as our access to la large language databases has increased, our understanding of actual usage has improved, you know, we're not just basing it on what one person says based on what they've read in literature and what they think. It's more like you can look at large bodies of literature and see how people who are excellent writers are actually using language. So it's stretched our imagination of what is acceptable, I think. But in addition, um, young kids tend to remember prohibitions. Things that you're not allowed to do right. and get in trouble for really stick. But we often, I've noticed that people often forget the qualifications to the principle. So a lot of, I work with so many adults who truly believe you cannot begin a sentence with because. That is just not factual. That is not true. Or but. Um, maybe, may, right. I mean, maybe their teachers taught them. Yeah. And that's the button and thing is a separate issue that has different, I think that's different considerations. Those are different considerations, but also interesting. But the because thing, so kids write fragments when they're not um, monitored, you know, because we speak in fragments. So kids will write, because I want to, or something, you know, they might be yeah. writing a little short story in third grade, because yeah. I want to, period. And then the teacher doesn't want them to write fragments. So maybe the teacher says, don't begin with because, as a temporary thing. Or maybe when they're in, but they can begin with because if they have, because I was tired, I decided to take a nap. That's a perfectly legitimate sentence. It's mm -hmm. identical structurally to when I am tired, I take a nap dependent clause, independent clause. But, you know, maybe the seventh grade teacher explained that, you know, when the kid was a little older, but the child, the adult doesn't remember that. They forget the part about you can do it as long as you have another independent clause, if what could be a full sentence after that opening part. And so it's very hobbling. And that's what ends up, what causes people to do things like due to the fact that I was late today, you know, as opposed to just saying, because I was late today and then yeah. something, something, something. Yeah. So I want people to talk like human beings and to feel comfortable doing that, not to feel constrained. I think that's like, uh, certainly it's true in my business. 
And I think probably in many, many businesses, when you first start out, you have to learn how to do it the so-called correct way. And I'm using the air quotes, how to do it properly. And then over time, as you become more experienced in your field, you learn how to forget about some of those rules to set them aside and do it in a way that's more effective for you. I think that is a beautiful way to put it. And the, that ties in with what you were, you just brought up a moment ago, the beginning, I forget which conjunction you use, but beginning sentences with and and but that's also a prohibition that a lot of kids are taught in school. And I actually think that has um, some instructional benefit because so, so many of us, even as adults speak in sentences that begin with conjunctions. It's useful to teach children to begin with the, I more of the meat and potatoes of the sentence. And then as they grow older, they'll notice um, if they're reading carefully that journalists regularly begin with and and but. Um, mm -hmm. Writers of beautiful novels begin with and and but. I think you can do it badly or you can do it well. You know, you have to have a sense of the rhythm and the style um, and ha whether it's having the effect you want. Um, overdoing it can sound kind of amateurish, I think, but it's a, it's a, a, a writing maturity thing that you develop, as you said, you know, you, you end up becoming more knowledgeable about your field and you get comfortable. Well, and, and also when you're writing, uh, and it, very much the same as you're, when you're speaking, but when you're writing, you're writing in a particular voice. Most of the time it's your own voice, yes. but not always. Right. And if you're trying, if you're trying to, uh, you know, to give a, a, a certain character, to to the information or the, the what you're trying to say, you will do that in a stylistic way that may be different from the way you would normally speak. But this is part this is part of the growth of of your particular skill, right? Because yeah. of your experience. I love the way you put that, and I also think um, I remember when I was when I was uh, in my twenties, I wondered why there were so many math geniuses and so few by comparison writing prodigies. I think um, I, I'm sure people can speak, there are people who can speak more um, knowledgeably and eloquently about this than I can, but I think so much with writing um, and communicating generally that it, it, it requires maturity. So much of it is being aware of how people might differ from you and how you can speak to them in a way that will engage them and not put them off. And you just usually, you can, you can be a whiz with numbers. It doesn't, it doesn't require the, the human skills that people in the same way that um, communicating through language um, requires. I, 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 I looked back, I've looked back at some of my college writing and, and, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I think I thought I was a lot better than I was <laughs> at that age. It's really, that's the other thing. You know, when people say, oh, everyone writes like hell today, it's, you know, it's young kids don't know how to write. Take, if you have an attic with some old papers, take a look at what you used <laughs> to do. And I think, I mean, I think people would be surprised. I was, I was even, I, I already knew that. And I was surprised when I looked at some stuff last year, I thought, wow, I was annoying. <laughs> Let's go back to grammar and your grammar table a little bit. Tell, tell us about some of the uh, some of the great conversations you've had, some of the ones that uh, are most memorable to you for whatever reason and the, the ones you like to tell. Sure. Oh, my gosh. There's so many. I mean, every single time I go out, I get happy. I'm happier when I leave than when I set up. You know, it just 
Um, you never know what's going to happen. One of my favorite stories involved the footnote fetishist that I met um, outside my apartment building. You, that may not be a category that people are automatically familiar with, the footnote fetishist, but I met, I was talking grammar with some people and there a woman um, was standing by waiting. She came over, came over to me after they left and she told me that she loved what I was doing um, and she was a huge footnote fan. She just loved footnotes. So she told me that she had tattooed a footnote on her foot. And it was winter, so she had, you know, boots on or something. But she pulled out her phone and she showed me this footnote that she had tattooed on her foot. It said seven and then Ibid. So it was like a, a classical brief footnote. And um, that's the thing that astonishes me. It's not – so there's grammar – but then there are also the grammar adjacent things, word lovers that will come over and tell me the funniest things. There, there's the woman who um, a bunch of people can still recite prepositions in alphabetical order. You know, they learned this thing in school where they had to memorize lists of prepositions. So they start with the A's about above. I mean, I can't do it because I didn't, I wasn't actually asked to memorize these. I just know them by function, mm -hmm. but they can keep going. I mean, some of them know a preposition song. I met a woman who had choreographed a dance to this prep song about prepositions when she was in fifth grade and she performed a little piece of it for me. She still remembered she was around 40. Um, so some of this is nostalgic for people. Um, let's see what else. What would be interesting? I, I like um, I like family and husband wife disputes. It's hilarious. Um, as I mentioned in the book, and I don't know whether you've gotten there yet, but when we're talking about a husband and wife dispute, I found that the wife is almost always right. Really? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's certainly been my experience. <laughs> uh, one of the early one of the early encounters I had involved a husband, wife, and an apostrophe. The, um, the wife wanted to know, so the husband had texted the wife about um, using the plural of their last name in an email, like something, it said something like, another fun night out for the Smiths. That, that wasn't their last name. I don't remember what it was right now. But so he had done another fun night out for the Smith, or another great night out for the Smith apostrophe S. So he made their last name plural Lips. by putting apostrophe S instead of just an S. So she wanted to know if that was right. She thought it was wrong, what her husband had sent her. And she was right that it was wrong. Yeah. And so then I, you know, then they, but, but it's not like, I don't sit there and say, oh, I'm, you know, that's really bad that you did that. That's not the vibe. It's meant to be fun and lively. He laughed, she laughed, they went off and did whatever they were going to do. So that's how it goes. That's how I roll. We, yeah, we, we, we see that kind of thing a lot. And I know a lot of people that will point those out, you know, it's apostrophe. Oh, somebody wrote apostrophe. They're always putting an apostrophe before the, any word that ends with S gets an apostrophe, <laughs> right? And and that just indicates that you understand that and and you know what the person was trying to say and let's you know cut them a little bit of slack cuz you're not a big fan of helping people by correcting them right no i i answer the question that's asked so if someone comes up to me and wants to know what a noun is i'm going to talk about that if someone wants to know i when i was in ohio at least twice i got asked if ain't was a word yes and I found that interesting because hard, I, I've hardly ever been asked that anywhere else. And I think two of maybe 
you know, a handful of times were in Ohio. So I don't know what, whether that means anything. That was a very small sample size. Nonetheless, it struck me. And, you know, my answer to that is, of course, ain't is a word. When yes. people, if people are saying something and it has meaning, it's, it's a word. A word. Yeah. I don't, you know, but what does that mean? That I don't write it in my corporate email, you know, when right. I'm writing to my clients, I don't use it. But um, the ain't has its own system that it fits into a dialogue, dialect in a perfectly logical way. So if I'm hearing ain't at the grammar table, I'm not thinking that's wrong. I'm thinking that the person is speaking in a dialect that I understand in a way that I actually enjoy because um, the, the it's miraculous how many different little pockets of language you have all over the United States oh, where people yeah. speak differently. Oh, I love talking about this. This isn't really, this is grammar adjacent to, it's not specifically grammar, just pronunciation is so much fun. Like um, my husband and I have pronunciation differences. He grew up in Connecticut. I grew up in California. I, I seem to have been left with fewer vowels than he has. <laughs> so, so sometimes he doesn't know what I'm saying. For example, the names D-O-N and D-A-W-N, uh -huh. for me, those sound the same. Don and Don. <laughs> and for do they for you? Where, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in California also. In, so you uh, price them the same, right? Well, yes and no. Here's the here's okay. the here's the problem because because I speak for a living, I tend to shouldn't say that because I don't always do it. Sometimes I do it intentionally, but uh, I would I would hear the W in it. I would say dawn, not not dawn. I'm exaggerating now. Right, but I it understand. Would, it would sound different to me, I think, depending but on who's you, pronouncing. But before you did that. When you were first entering the workplace, did you actually say them the same? Do you know? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure I would. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so, so when I refer, I I have friends who are named D A W N, and when I refer to them, my husband thinks I'm referring to a guy named D O N. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, um, I find that really, I find that a lot of fun. Or, or I also got asked about. Um, at at the end of sentences that was in oh yes south carolina and and you hear that more in certain dialects in certain parts of the country than others like i can't say i don't personally say where's he at mm -hmm. you know i don't say that i just say where is he um but where is he at doesn't i think it sounds kind of charming so i got a kick out of it so people ask me about that kind of thing and then one person is on the left hoping that i'm going to diss the person on the right for doing it <laughs> Um, but I don't, it, again, I think we can have, like, we can have a kind of bilingualism where we have more traditional grammar that's associated with standard American English and we can have fun with the other stuff. So bring it. That's my, that's opinion. a, that is a great outlook. That's a, that's a great philosophy. And I'm so glad to talk to you because it's going to make it so much easier for me to, you know. To to not catch those things, I never I never point them out, but uh, ex uh, except for my wife because she wants me to, <laughs> she wants me to help she wants me to help. and I wouldn't do that to her with other people around. It's just when there's just the two of us, I'll say no. What you mean is this, but uh, a lot there are a lot of things, and I hear this professionally in a lot of people, and it just drives me up the wall. And they say, well, the reason why is the reason why. Oh, right. So you want the reason that, or you want the reason is X be happened because yeah, brevity, 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 you know, clarity. Oh, oh, the reason. 
Well, okay. So you're not, yeah. And all the complaint I hear about that one is the du- duplication. So the reason already takes care right. of the why, the why takes care of the reason. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't do that in writing. But I, I, I did notice the other day, because I think about these kinds of things rather often, I yeah. noticed that I said it. I said the reason why. Um, at the probably at the grammar table. So I maybe I'll be fired. I don't know. But <laughs> um, but but stuff like that pops up. And the thing is, often the people who come up with me come up to me who are most aggressive with complaints. And I have to say, the more aggressive complaints are almost always through angry emails and not at the grammar table, which I think helps show yeah. that face to face communication is good for calm and communication and kindness it just people behave better when they have a face staring at them right <laughs> but um now what was my um i totally lost my train of thought what was i just saying right we were talking about? about the reason why oh right oh right and so the point is people who complain really angrily about some feature of language that they find illogical they are, they don't realize, they're just, their attention has been drawn to that because they see a departure from their own habit or for some, from something they were taught. If you look closely at all kinds of fixed expressions we use, they're not necessarily logical. We don't say, when we, when we ride on a train, are we sitting on top of the car? You know, we're not. Usually we're, that would be really scary. We're yeah. inside in a comfortable seat. So um, uh, some things get more scrutiny and then they see, I don't know. I just think, I think there's a lot more wonder and um, surprise in language than people realize when they get too fixated on what they think are absolute rules. I feel like I'm, at a, I'm in a counseling session. This is great. <laughs> Because I'm going to charge you five cents now. You're 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 helping <laughs> you're, you're helping to calm me down about things. Now here here's a real here's a uh, here's a real challenge because this is this is the best example I can think of 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 my real hot button is there is so much redefining of the language going on now, and I suppose the language has always evolved and words have been redefined. But when I saw the Oxford English Dictionary a couple, three, five, ten years ago, whatever it was, when they decided that literally means the same thing as figuratively, I have no use for the Oxford English Dictionary. Did you? Are, were you saw that? Did you see that? There yes, was actually I, a big article yes. about it. I I don't believe that I personally say I literally. Here, oh, just a cautionary note. Yeah. People tell me what they say or don't say, but I can sometimes catch them two seconds later contradicting what they just told me. So our sense of what comes out of our mouths is not always perfect. I don't believe that I personally use literally, you know, to mean, um, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. Wait, let me think of a good example. It was so, literally raining cats and dogs or something like that. Right, that kind of thing. So I don't do that. I, I mean, I kind of understand the argument, but I don't personally feel a need to, <laughs> I don't feel a need for that one. So I'm not going to argue about it. I'm not going to argue in favor of it particularly. However, I do say things that are hyperbolic and not literally true all the time. Yeah. You know, my head exploded. Yeah. My head didn't explode. And I think that's sort of the idea behind it, that the literally is an, uh, is a bit, 
I haven't looked at the the formal explanations lately, but that it's a sort of uh, exaggeration for dramatic effect. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, well, that's I don't another, miss that one. I'm not going to fight hyper, on behalf of that one. <laughs> Hyperbole is another problem. We got to a point where uh, we used to have movie stars. Now everybody's a superstar. You know, I don't know what's bigger than that. Uh, you used to be able to go up to a, a, a fast food place and order a small, medium, or large Coke. <laughs> now there's no such thing as small. There's no such thing as medium. You've got regular, you've got large, you've got super gigantic. And, you know, everything, we've, we've gotten everything to the point where there's no place else to go. And that kind of thing. So now we're talking about words and not uh, not grammar per se, but but that's the thing. I I all of this stuffs. I I I find sometimes that people who are language professionals of various varieties get a little bit annoyed by the sprawl. I guess you could say I have grammar sprawl at the grammar table because I really am open to talk. There's no. I don't feel a need to cat to box people into just grammar so we're you know i'm sorry that's not a grammar table you are going to have to go find a vocabulary table somewhere <laughs> else that's not going to happen um, um, and and really grammar itself the term is used in some in, in a variety of different ways i mean it's often used to refer to more just the the actual structural relationships that you have in a language but it's also used more popularly to talk about um correctness and incorrectness or anything that people think might fall into something that the category of something that could be criticized by something else in their speech or writing. So pronunciation gets tossed in there, everything. That's why I go out very prepared. I'm not just going out with a table and a chair. I'm going out with a table and piles of books that I actually had to acquire a grammar table cart to carry because they were getting too heavy so that if someone wants to know a word history i can look it up in merriam webster for them that's not grammar that's you know word history um but oh oh and then sometimes here's what happens which i find amazing sometimes people stand far away from the table and look at it and it will look as though they want to come over and talk to me um and i'll i'll, I'll finally i'll finally say something and they'll say something like well i have a question but i'm not sure it's grammar <laughs> so there's this fear of bringing, and it and it often has to do with punctuation. So yeah. people argue that that punctuation isn't grammar, but my feeling about that is um, we punctuate a lot based on the structures that are the grammatical structures that are in the sentence. So they are markers, they're indicators of meaning. Um, they're not just where we take a, a pause to breathe. So that's all part of what I cover. And in fact, a lot of the questions I get are punctuation related. Do you find that there has a, been a decline in the quality of, of uh, speaking or writing, especially with the advent of, of social media and things like Twitter and people, you know, uh, or, or texting where people are using one letter instead of a full word or the thing about, and the thing that kills me about texting when it first came out and my my son had, was texting somebody and i figured out what he was doing i said oh i see you're telling your friend something you want to tell them but you don't want to hear the response otherwise you can Wait, actually what do you talk mean? on the phone huh? oh, oh okay i get it <laughs> so you know are we are we getting to a point where communication is all going one way 
and you know there's real no no real concern for whether or not what i'm saying is being understood i don't know if i'm making myself clear no, now i under i understand exactly i think i understand exactly what you're asking about um people have been complaining about a decline in standards for you know forever like i i i see um you know i've seen articles early 20th century magazines complaining about the terrible grammar of young people so those young people from that period are maybe the parents of the grandparents who compare complained about our usage you know it's like yeah. it's like the cycle of life i mentioned earlier that um people often are deceived about the quality of the writing they produced when they were younger. So I think um, views on that are distorted by um, subjective impressions that just aren't true. So people think they wrote better than they did when they were young. So then they it's more likely that they'll have a sense of decline. They don't realize how they improved through their life, what they learned about communicating to others. Um, in addition, we don't have that much exposure. I mean, we think we have a lot of exposure, but really we're in our own community pockets, even if that pocket is expanded by social media, you're seeing a portion of the world, you're seeing a genre, you're not, you can walk into a bookstore and read beautiful writing that's being produced all the time, every day. Um, in addition, social media, I think for me, it actually improved my writing because it caused, it gave me an opportunity to essentially publish something for public consumption in a way that I had not been able to do before. And I saw, I learned a lot about the kinds of things that tick people off um, and or that they're interested in or that they respond to. You can see what kind of engagement you get. Um, and I just post, I've always just posted what I wanted to. I don't mean to suggest that I've had, had like an angle of this for, for posting, but I think it teaches receptive people a lot about audience awareness and um, they, yeah, I've seen young people who I think because of this exposure can write especially beautifully because they have access to a larger human community that responds and they take that input and they learn more because of it. So there may be some costs from people who are not good at the kind of bilingualism that's required in a social media heavy world. Like you have, okay, fine, don't punctuate or capitalize in your texts, but you need to remember to switch when you're writing to your boss. Right. And some people don't do that e as easily as others. But I certainly think many people are capable of that. I send to, I have a confession and I hope you're not going to hang up on me, but uh. I, I send texts without capital letters and punctuation to <laughs> loved ones. So I, I admire that. I admire that because I, I do. And uh, I, you know, I'm writing full sentences and I'm using punctuation and capitalization <laughs> and it takes me forever to respond to somebody and, you know, the, and I'll get a, somebody will comment on that once in a while. So that's good. It's just essentially it's speaking a different version of the same language and speaking of languages, as many as you've studied, is there something special about English? I, it's the only one I know, but I am absolutely head over heels in love with the English language because of all of its versatility, because I don't think we have any synonyms at all. I think every word has its own unique uh, sense of, of time and, and feeling. It imparts uh, an emotional difference from the, another word that might essentially need the same thing. And to use that, you know, you, you can write between the lines 
by implications, by use of the word that you've chosen. And it's really like creating art to me. Are all languages like that? I've never learned another language as well as I've learned English. So a, a comparison by me is probably not fair, but I believe that you can do the same kinds of things, my impression, and also from what I've read, that you can do the same kinds of things across languages. There may be features that differ, that differ but I think people make too much of those. Like, well, the, the, thing, I, the reason, what I'm, what I'm actually curious about specifically, and again, I've gotten you so far away from grammar, I apologize. You, um, no, but I like, I like free associating. Okay. It's a real conversation. It's not an interview. <laughs> I'm um, nonlinear. No, you know, no, but, but the, the, the Latin languages, really, I, I, I had trouble when I was learning Spanish in school, and I actually took a French class for a while. And the, the referring to objects, you know, in the male and female, I, I can't even remember how that's explained or why, you know, certain objects are male and certain objects are female, and that doesn't make any sense to me. And it seems like that would be really, uh, that would really stifle any kind of communication. And probably- no, it it really doesn't. It's it's just it's so automatic. I mean, when you speak a language, I'm sorry, I got excited there. I, I feel passionate. I have passionate feelings about this one. Good. So, yeah, <laughs> um, that stuff is all automatic. And in spite of what people, the impressions people have that you think differently because you're in one language versus the other, I think human beings, sure, we have differences, but we have so many similarities. And the, 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 our biology and the feelings that spring from that and the way our, our brains are wired, um, astonishingly similar. So I, you know, I'm not distracted at all in another language by whether I have to make it um, feminine, masculine, neuter, you know, in German, it, it would be those three. I am distracted sometimes because I like to be, you know, to have grammatically correct sentences. So if I don't remember the gender of the the noun in German, uh. that bothers me. I don't like to get it wrong. But um, but overall, those just become almost like wallpaper. You don't really think about them. So we have things other languages don't have. Other languages have things we don't have. And humans are humans in all of them. So I'm the same, um, depending on your point of view, annoying or not annoying person in any language I've ever studied. I don't really, that's immutable. <laughs> and uh. it's just, I, I, but I like, I like the grammar stretching that it gives you because it makes you realize that some of the things you assume about language, about language, for example, English is typically subject verb object. So, you know, I subject through verb all comes last. That's the object. Um, but other languages aren't like that necessarily. And I, I feel like trying to figure out the other structures like subject, object, verb is very common. Um, I think it's like a fountain of youth. It probably, um, this is like, this is like my, um, the equivalent of my snake oil, like of a snake oil salesman. It will cut, if you study another language, it will cut five years. It will add five years to your life. Like that kind of thing. <laughs> I really think it kind of, it has this rejuvenating power. It's good for the skin. There we go. No one checked, no one fact checked that claim. <laughs> <laughs> 
I had one other question I was about to ask you and then let you go, but I can't remember now what it was. Um, what else, to, what else should we cover? Because we've been well, talking about I have something. Here. Yeah. I have yeah, something. Um, it's not so much about grammar in particular, but it is about the plans of the grammar table, which I'm very excited about. Um, my husband and I went to 47 states before COVID hit. So in January of 2020, we had gone to 47 states already, and I'd set up the grammar table in all of them, and he filmed that for a documentary that he's working on about the grammar table. Um, but I got stuck in New York, and so I had three states left. Well, yesterday, I went to Connecticut, which was one of my three missing states. How could I you miss that? It's right next door. Uh, <laughs> Well, you know, the thing is, that's when something is really easy to do, you don't yeah. really know that you have to do it ahead of time. <laughs> I, thought I, could go, I thought I could go anytime. So I left it and then everything shut down. But um, so now I've done all of the 48, you know, mainland states and I have left um, Alaska and Hawaii and I'm going to Alaska in less than two weeks. I'm super excited. Oh, good. I would. I Yeah, that's great. You reminded me of another book that I wanted to mention to you. So I want to mention that. You probably read it. It's it's called uh, The Great Typo Hunt. I haven't read that. No. I haven't read that. What year, do you know approximately uh, when that was, came out? Oh, boy. I confess that doesn't even sound familiar to me. Okay, wait a second. You know what? I can find out right now. Is this about, is this about finding errors in everything everyone else writes? Uh, yeah. Okay. Here, here it is. It's called, <laughs> it's called the great typo hunt, two friends changing the world. One, uh, one correction at a time. And I'm looking at it on Amazon right now. I can't remember when I read it and it doesn't say here that it leaps out at me as to when it was published, but it, I just loved it. And what you do reminded me of this, except that you're not correcting people. You're just helping them. But there are these two guys named Jeff Deck and Benjamin Person, and they were friends. And for some reason, they decided to uh, go out and fix all the signs in the country, all the public signs that are wrong. They they've got misspellings or they've got punctuation problems. So they went armed with magic markers and tape and whiteout and stuff like that. And they would go into stores or mark up uh, signs out out on the highway. They actually uh, got arrested for defacing federal <laughs> property by doing uh, by doing corrections at a national park. And they travel all over the country doing this. And it was just it was just wonderful. I really really enjoyed that. But it, it I, sounded kind of like what you're doing. <laughs> I haven't been arrested yet, but yeah. it could happen. You never know. Yeah. I was I have been I have been told to move by the police before, but not often. Yeah. Okay. Ellen, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I love your really philosophy. Good. I love your philosophy. And I think, you know, what I sense from you is that you appreciate the beauty um and the versatility of language. And that that above all, I want people to leave any encounter with me feeling that that's what I believe too, not that I'm uh, you know, trying to put them in jail. Well, I, that's good. I, yeah, like you, I appreciate uh, the nuances of the language. I, I love, I love uh, regional dialects and uh, accents. I live in oh, Texas, yeah. for heaven's sake, where I've been, 
I've been here for 11 years and I'm still trying to learn the language. Uh, it varies from one part of the state to another, you know, the, the things people say and the way they say them. And I love, I love going to Texas. I'm going to go, I went there and, uh, I went to Austin with the grammar table and I'm going to, I'm going to be in, uh, I guess, I guess I'm going back to Austin, but I'm going to try to hit, hit Dallas too next time later this year. That's where I am. You'll have to All say right. hello. So. All right. That, that would be great. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Love your book. And again, it's Rebel with a Clause by Ellen Joven. It was, this was delightful. Thank you. Have a great Thank day. Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye. <laughs>